So when it comes to COVID, you know, that, that debate becomes more fierce in a lot of ways. Uh, do you, how much privacy are you willing to give up in order to protect your lives? Uh, how much, but it's, it's a public health question, not a personal question. You know? So if you're trying to protect a bunch of 18 year olds in campus, the odds are great they're not gonna die from COVID-19, but the odds are also excellent that if infected, they'll take the virus back to their parents and those parents, um, which is where the risks really begin to shoot up. So you know, d- does this become a way of kind of teaching America how public health actually works and how, what needs to be done for it? But at the same time, as you said, riots in the streets, that's not an exaggeration because we've already seen something close to riots yeah. uh, in Cleveland and in uh, East Lansing. And um, so I, I think it's going to vary from campus to campus. It's going to vary from region to region. I wouldn't be surprised that if, uh, that if campuses in the New York greater metropolitan area are much more likely to run tracing apps than campuses, say, in Florida. Today's sponsor of the SHI podcast is Carter Young. For those of you who may not know about Carter Young, which I can only assume you are brand new to student housing or you've been living under a dorm for the past 20 years, Carter Young is a debt recovery firm based in Georgia who has been specializing in debt recovery related to college students for over two decades. They even operate their call center out of Athens, Georgia, because they wanted to employ people who understand the student journey in order to give them a better chance of collecting from your student residents who end up owing you a balance after they move out. They also provide training programs to your on-site staff and review your operating methods to make sure everything is being done to prevent bad debt from happening. Now, how many debt recovery services do that? If you're not using Carter Young, I can guarantee you're leaving money on the table. Visit them at carter-young.com or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and man, it's been a minute. April 6th was the last time that I published a podcast, and uh, there's a lot of reasons behind it, but uh, it, it has not meant that we have not been busy creating content. I'll get a little bit more into that in just a second, but just a quick update you know everything has been fine with with myself and my family um just really kind of adjusting to to a lot of the new normal glad to see that that some things are are starting to relax a little bit the last four episodes that we did were focused on on COVID 19 and and kind of what the response was uh we did something with Willie Butler, uh, as it related to, you know, how to lease in this in this pandemic and, and what needs to be in place with your team in order to in order to overcome a lot of objections. And a lot of things that I was looking at at that point in time were very different than what everyone else in the industry was looking at. It, everyone in the industry was very focused on what was happening right in front of them and and fortunately in my position as being a consultant it allowed me to focus a little bit more on you know what are things going to look like 
in the future? What are things going to look like, certainly this coming fall, if students are, are allowed to return to campus? And that set me down a path of, of doing a lot of research, and uh, that that ultimately ended in a an article I wrote for LinkedIn. I'll make sure that it's it's posted below. But one of the things that really kind of drove a lot of that research was, uh, I guess, a was a, a discovery of a, a guy by the name of Brian Alexander, who is a Georgetown professor. He's also a, a futurist as it relates to higher education. And he, uh, he, he really kind of opened my eyes to, to a lot of different things. And really, um, uh, he started putting together a paper and he, he holds a, a weekly forum called Future Trends Forum that, uh, that I, I started just soaking up every, every bit of content he was putting out and really kind of understanding how this is going to impact the the future of higher education and in a lot of ways how it's accelerated us into the future this is a uh, this is a podcast titled back to the future with Brian Alexander uh, for those that, of you that don't know that may not be part of our student housing insight community uh, that's our online community and forum that we have as a part of our website if you want to become a part of it, go to studenthousandinsight.com, upper right-hand corner, uh, click on login. Uh, if you're a new member, obviously, you know, go through that process of, of joining. And there's where you basically invite us to, to do a couple of things. One, uh, allow you to come into our online platform where you can research a lot of topics that we're talking about. Um, and it's it's you know, basically being put together by not only myself and, and our co-hosts, but also from uh, from other members as well. So a lot of great information there. I really want us to to, to use that forum to, to help in any way that it can and help in this industry communicate more. But but anyway, if you're if you're a part of that, then you got an email notification. And then there were some other email campaigns that we did to let everybody know that we'd actually started planning two series of webinars. One is a, is a weekly webinar uh, that's on Wednesdays at three o'clock and it's called What's Happening in Your Region. And what we're doing in that is uh, many of you guys have, uh, have heard me talk about College House Research and the work they do in surveying off-campus markets and, and the properties that are related with that. I've got just a fantastic platform that that's growing and gives some great insights. We've actually worked on uh, if you've been a part of our uh, part of our regional summits and have, have attended the second day of that, we actually put together a workshop that I worked with them on to to create a market analysis uh, tool that everybody can use. But anyway, uh, I sat down with, with Charlie at college house and said, look, we, I want to do this, this regional, you know, what's happening in your region webinar each week. And we divided the country into, into seven regions. And each week we're going to be talking with, uh, university administrators, specifically housing directors for each of those regions. And, and, you know, just asking them, 
a few questions. You know, what's keeping them up at night as they're preparing for for folks to for students to come back to campus and you know, what kind of guidance are they really searching for, be it from their university, from government leaders, from health organizations? And then, you know, what's their feelings on enrollment? What are they hearing, uh, be it for their institution or, or other neighboring institutions? So that could give you guys, the, the listeners, um, some insight into what's going on with the on-campus world. And then in those sessions, we actually open that up with discussing the off-campus markets because the one thing I'm learning is that uh, for all the great work that on-campus housing administrators do, they're not always studying the the off-campus market as to what's happening with rates, what's happening with students going home or or staying, what's happening with pre-leasing. And so... In a time like this, it's been really, really good for them to get information like that. So College House and, and Charlie Matthews opens up that session reviewing all of that information. So if you haven't seen that, go to our YouTube channel. We've got the first two uh, sessions that are already up or first two regions already up. Uh, one was the Southeast Atlantic region, which was Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas and Virginia. And then we did the interior uh, southeast, which is uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, West Virginia, uh, Kentucky. So, so take a look at that. It was it was really amazing to to hear that. So, if you've got properties in those areas, make sure you're listening to those. Make sure that you've got your property managers. If you're a regional manager or an owner, uh, make sure that you've you've got your property managers listening to those, especially for their regions, because it'll give them a lot of insight. Plus, just as you know, this is going to go until the end of June. And so there's been a lot of folks that have commented just from week one to week two, (laughs) how how many of the things changed as far as answers. And I can imagine what it's going to be like when we get to the Western region in the seventh week. So uh, make sure that you've registered for that. You can go to studenthouseandinsight.com. We've got a banner right there in the middle of the page for our COVID-19 webinar series. That's that's the first series. The second series is uh, titled Planning for Fall 2020. And that is every other Thursday. We've got one coming up this Thursday, May 28th. That is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's focused on you know, three or four different topics that are, are about preparing for this fall. And I'm not just talking about move-in day. I'm talking about, you know, what's what's happening with your marketing expenses. Uh, we've got a great panel that's coming up this week with folks from uh, Learfield IMG, which I know a, a good many of the listeners have contracts, sports marketing contracts with, with those folks. You know, when when you signed that contract, did you ever think you would be having a conversation about how a pandemic has you know reduced the the eyeballs on that digital signage by you know fifty percent, eighty five percent? How are you going to get your money and investment out of that? So we're covering that. We're we're talking about uh, we are talking about moving day. We had a conversation about preparing for turn. And all of these sessions we're also adding to our YouTube channel. We're also going to strip the audio off and just have it in podcast form uh, with a little bit more of a editorial for myself, as I like to do. 
but I'm not going to lie. This has been this has been tough putting all this together. Uh, we are uh, here at Student House and Insight have not been. Uh, it's not been one of those things that we've been immune from when it comes to, uh, you know, what's happening with with the job market. Uh, this is a very small ship here, uh, mostly volunteers. And uh, that's been, you know, as they have refocused things, they've been able to put less time into into helping with the podcast. So a lot of that has, uh, uh, you know, has been put just the content creation has been put on me. So that's <laughs> that plays a little bit into the delay as well. But but we're doing some really great things and I, I'm getting some great feedback from those that are listening. So make sure that you're registering for that. Again, just go to studenthousandinsight.com. You'll see the, the banner there on the homepage and that'll take you through the process. The other really cool thing and, and something that took a little bit of time for us to get worked out in, in planning this is we're using a new platform called feed loop um which is really for virtual conferences um or if you had a live event and you know you wanted to have uh, you know a, a virtual reach so that you know people that i mean think about it for your own leadership conferences that a lot of the companies uh, a lot of the student housing operators do where they're bringing in people from all across the country um, you've got the you've got those sessions and you may be recording those sessions. You know, this year you may not see a lot of those property managers and maintenance supervisors be able to make it out because of travel restrictions or whatever. Feed loop will actually provide a solution where all of that can be streamed and you even get your own virtual exhibit floor for the exhibitors. So if you're if you are um, you know, a vendor to the space and you want inf- more information on, you know, how you can be an exhibitor, give me a call. We're doing doing it really, really cheap, basically just to, to pay for the platform and, uh, and and see what what happens. I think this is going to be something in the future that you know, we will continue to use. Uh, I think it makes it a little bit a little bit easier for everybody when it comes to certainly when it comes to traveling, but I think also just absorbing the content. Yeah. So looking forward to that. If you want more information, it's feedloop.com and it's P-H-E-E-D-L-O-O-P.com. But again, if you want to register for that, please go to the website and, and find that registration page. It's pretty simple. So guys, I, I wanted to um, to kind of kick this, you know, restart <laughs> of the the podcast after being on a kind of a I don't know six week eight week hiatus here. I, I wanted to to go back to this conversation with with Brian Alexander that we had on our first uh, Thursday event, um, which was back on May. 13th, 14th, whatever, whatever Thursday that was. I asked him to, after the conversations I I had with him on talking about, you know, the, the potential um, scenarios that we could be looking at this fall. And he, he narrows it down to, to three likely scenarios. And, and, you know, maybe there's some cross between them, some hybrid approach between them. And I wanted to, to have him share that with everybody. So uh, so our keynote is Brian Alexander, and we did kind of a, a fireside chat, I guess is the best way of describing it, on this webinar. And I really loved what he had to say. 
you want more information on him, we'll, we'll put the, the link below to his to his blog site. Um, I, I highly encourage anybody that is concerned about what's happening with higher education, be it from the fact that you support it through housing or if it's something that you're thinking about for your own kids, I would certainly highly recommend you uh, pay attention to what he's doing. He's also got a new book that just came out uh, back in January that I think a lot of our listeners will get a lot, lot out of. So with that being said, let's cut to that interview. All right, Brian, do we have you? You certainly do. Well, fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. So this session is titled Back to the Future uh, with Brian Alexander. Brian is someone that you, you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, but I'll get into a little bit more about, about Brian in, in just a second. But I want to go into, before I go into all the, all the details, Brian, of, of your background, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, I know you've, you've been busy through this entire thing, but and you've been back to back with with clients and and meetings yourself and, and i appreciate everything that you're doing but um i appreciate you taking out some time for us today as well yeah, it's a real pleasure thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the hosting so a little bit more about Bron. he's an internationally known futurist a researcher writer speaker consultant and teacher uh, primarily working in the field of how technology transforms education um, he often contributes to the chronicle of higher education and interviewed by several national media outlets He's recently published Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education uh, for John Hopkins University Publishing. And then he's also a senior scholar at Georgetown University. You can find out more information on Brian at brianalexander.org. He's also the host of the Future Trends Forum, which is a weekly open video conversation about the future of higher education. So a little bit about how I came across Brian. If, um, if you read a recent article that I published on, on LinkedIn, uh, as everything started going into shutdown and I started seeing what was happening with universities, which wasn't surprising. I've seen universities shut down during epidemics before, <laughs> so that wasn't that surprising, but not to, not to this scale, not countrywide, not worldwide. And uh, as everybody was really beginning to focus on how they were going to respond to their residents, how they were going to how they would respond to their employees, especially in the, in the off-campus world, as universities were trying to figure out what they were going to do to come back from spring break, um, or how to get their students back after spring break in order just to get their stuff. Because I think we all knew that the classes were were going to go remote for the for the remainder of the semester. Those three-week kind of delays or extensions of spring break was something just to, to help everybody get their hands around it. Uh, being a, a consultant and kind of away from, from the madness of what everybody was dealing with in, in the weeds allowed me to really start focusing on the questions that were top of my mind, which is what is this next fall going to look like? And as I began looking through different publications and, and reading reports, I came across Brian and his Future Trends Forum and some of the things that he was he was writing about, and I just started absorbing as much of it as I could. He's a um, fantastic person to kind of bounce ideas off of and really under try to understand, well, 
what are the what ifs? And uh, when he says he's a he's a futurist, um, that's definitely he definitely fits the bill for that. And um, and Brian, I just welcome you today. And if there's anything else uh, about yourself, um, I know Academia Next came out in in January, and I know you're already working on something else. So if there's anything else you want to let the the audience know about where they can get in touch with you, go ahead and do that while I'll start switching over to our other slides. Well, thank you for that very, very kind introduction. Um, I, I really appreciate it. I, I am a futurist working in higher education. Uh, I teach classes part-time at Georgetown, which is an absolute treat. Um, and I try to think with as many people as possible. That's why I try to convene meetings and try to network and I try to crowdsource as well as to hold as many conversations as possible. I think we're a lot smarter if we think together than if we think by ourselves. And uh, at some point, one of my cats may decide to climb my head, apparently. They're, uh, they're very excited by this presentation, Wesley. Just so you know. <laughs> well, hey, let's go ahead and, <clears throat> um, and talk about the article that you came out with in, in, in March and followed up with in April. Um, with the three possible scenarios. Uh, I've got those on the screen here now, but if you could kind of go through those three possible scenarios that campuses sure. may be looking at this, this fall, um, that'll give everybody kind of a, a frame of, of reference for some of our discussion. Absolutely. They're based in part on what happens to the pandemic, how it actually plays out, and then uh, as well as how higher education responds to it. Uh, so the first scenario is called the post-pandemic campus. And that's the idea that academic leaders think that they are more or less beyond the peak of the pandemic and that it's safe to reopen face-to-face -face education. When I published this in March, people weren't sure this was actually going to happen, but it's starting to happen. And we're seeing more and more announcements of this. Uh, COVID fall is different. Uh, this is when campuses decide that they will stay online uh, entirely in order to protect people. Uh, we just days ago with the announcement from the California State University system. And the third is what I call the toggle term. Uh, this is when campuses alternate between face-to-face -face and online during the same semester. It may be that they open face-to-face -face and two months in, uh, we see a major spike in infections and then they have to shut down the university's face-to-face -face environment, move entirely online, or they have to switch different populations. So admit this graduate program, but not this undergraduate program. So, I mean, they, these are the three that, that I have in mind and what I've been looking at for the past couple of months. Uh, so far, uh, one and two are the ones that are, are most popular. Uh, most college universities have not issued a statement for the fall yet because they're all thinking and arguing fiercely about this. But those, I, I think three is one that we're going to see in practice, if not in planning. Yeah. Um, what are some of your immediate thoughts with the announcement that, that Cal State made this, uh, made this week? Do you think, I mean, and it's kind of a follow-up from, you know, what they said that they were planning on a few weeks ago, but just interested in, in getting some of your, your thoughts, if you think that's going to play out. Uh, sure. more and more, or if you think that's going to be a re regional decision? I, th I think it depends. <clears throat> it depends in part on geography, as you said. It depends in part on institutional type. Uh, so it's much easier for a non-residential school uh, to move entirely online than one that has an elaborate residential life. Uh, those schools have uh, a lot invested in uh, maintaining everything from residence halls, student life to athletics. And for them, producing this online is both very difficult and also costly, costing that it'll take time and money to try to reproduce everything from social life to mental health counseling online. But also, frankly, a lot of them make money on dining and uh, housing. 
and losing that uh, income is going to be very, very difficult for them. Uh, I, I think moving entirely online um, has some downsides that we've seen over the past two months. One of them is that we are finally, for the first time in this country, talking about the digital divide. Uh, and the digital divide is deep, it's persistent, uh, it's driven largely by geography as well as by income, uh, and we don't have good ways of crossing it. So we've seen everything from uh, campuses mailing out hotspots to people to shipping out uh, laptops to uh, going offline. Uh, I saw some tribal schools uh, or heard about tribal schools where the campuses were sending printed materials to students and students would ship them back. And so that's one of the challenges. Uh, another is just trying to support students uh, mentally and physically uh, when they're not physically on campus. Uh, everything from you know mental health to advising to of course meals. I mean, this is something we've seen in K through 12 is that a lot of students depended on hot lunches and hot breakfast at schools. Uh, without that, it can there can be an issue. And we've already seen this in higher education as well. Yeah. So that kind of ties into to my next question. Just reflecting on on spring 2020, what what's a couple of the wins and losses by the higher ed industry in in responding to the outbreak and, and trying to protect everyone? Uh, it's, a, it's a fun question. Uh, I think the biggest win that is just astonishing is how quickly we migrated to wholly online. Uh, this is, we haven't done this in higher education before. This is truly astonishing. Uh, just how much teaching, how many classes, how many student interactions went online in just, in some cases, a few days, if not a few weeks. I mean, that's an astonishing achievement. And alongside that, another win is that we now have all that experience to draw upon. A couple of losses. Uh, one is that we are likely to lose some students, uh, students for whom, <coughs> uh, students who are knocked out by non-academic reasons, such as families being sick or more likely hit by the uh, recession that is so deep and extensive that we'll be calling it a depression pretty soon. That's one of the big, big losses. But another one is, uh, that it's very hard to discuss this out loud if you're a campus leader. Mm -hmm. uh, so the discussions can have blowback effects. So if, you're, if you say, well, we're thinking about moving online this fall, there is a story about how, I believe it was Boston University, published a 12-page article on what they're planning to do this fall. And 11 pages or so uh, were, we're going to be open face-to-face. -face. We're going to do all these things normally. Here's how we're going to do them. And down on page 12 was this note where the president says, well, yeah, we have a contingency plan. If the pandemic is really fierce, then we'll have to be online. Forbes, Fortune, other articles said, Boston University going to be wholly online this fall. You know, it, it's really hard to, uh, to be able to have these kind of debates, which is a problem because this is the kind of thing that we need to have in the open. We need to have as many participants as possible. So for me, that's the second loss. Right. So let's talk a little bit about short-term impacts for this upcoming year. What do you think, you know, the, I don't know, top three to five issues that institutions are going to be grappling with as it relates to COVID-19? Sure. Uh, one of them is going to be rethinking their entire curriculum as well as non-curricular facets to move online. Uh, even campuses like, say, uh, Brown or Purdue that have made a lot of noises about opening in the fall have to be preparing contingency plans for this should the pandemic pick up again. Uh, a second thing to worry about is financial. 
if you're a public university, the odds are good that your state government will spend less on you next year than will cut that kind of support for all kinds of reasons I can talk about if you want. A third issue I have to be grappling with that everyone will have to be considering uh, is the possibility of an enrollment decline because a chunk of students will not want to go to a physical campus because they'll be afraid of infection or because they're just, they can't afford it. And another issue to think about is if a campus is actually open or it's online, how do you support the faculty and staff who are statistically in the danger zone uh, for infection? Yeah. Faculty who are over 55, say, or who have one of the comorbidities, i.e. Uh, diabetes, for example, or hypertension. You know, that, it, it's got to be tricky to be able to manage these. And on top of this, I think the other, the other issue is we have a, a national political season that's just going to ramp up through November, the election, and there's going to be flashes of connection with higher education, everything from trying to convince Congress to give up money in the different stimulus packages to different politicians who will take issue, who will you know, take stances about higher education, everything from you know, uh, politics to enrollment to classes to uh, institutional structures. And so that's another issue we have to grapple with. Yeah, the, it'd be an election year, a presidential election year. Just, uh, uh, yeah, that was one of the first things I've kind of pointed to because, you know, anyone's going to, any politician's going to use anything that they're, <laughs> they can get their hands on to throw at one another. And um, I think that's going to be pretty sad when it comes to a lot of the decisions that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of universities are going to be, their administrations are going to be put in, you know, in the middle of. So hopefully, hopefully that's mitigated some, somewhat, but uh, Tom will tell. So let, let's move into a little bit more of the long-term impacts. And I've got you know, kind of a two-part question here, but looking at the next five to 10 academic years, how does this pandemic change higher ed, both from an institutional perspective as well as administrative? I mean, looking out this far, um I think it's important first to remember the different drivers that were acting on higher education before the pandemic broke out. Uh, so we want to think about things like the importance of demographics. Uh, America's population, like the population of every nation that's gone through modernization, uh, the number of children drops like a stone and the number of seniors grows like mad. Uh, and so we've had to figure out how we shift. Do we take the 60-year curriculum? Do we take lifelong learning seriously? If so, uh, how do we change programs uh, and develop structures to support that? Uh, second problem is our financial instability, that uh, as uh, costs have shot up, as our tuition has increased, uh, as state support has decreased, uh, we've run into all kinds of financial problems that are still there, and COVID just heightens that. And on top of that, we have a whole series of technologies which both threaten and enable us. And so all of those forces are there that we still have to uh, interact with. Second, the, the pandemic does some very, very interesting things. Uh, one is that it is giving us more research and more experience in teaching online than we've ever had, um, which has all kinds of impacts. Uh, it can make us a lot smarter about our teaching with technology decisions. There can be blowbacks. I'm really expecting to see uh, stories about bad student experiences go, if you'll forgive the expression, viral uh, through the media. I'm expecting to see more and more faculty criticism of teaching online do the same as well. Uh, and those are issues looking five to ten years out. I, I would add one more point uh, to think about. And once we start looking, especially the ten-year period, 
The subject of my next book is the impact of climate change in higher education. Uh, so as we see all these different impacts, such as extreme weather events, such as changes in agriculture, uh, such as, of course, you know, the gradual change of uh, coastal and desert bordering areas, all of these are factors that we have to keep in mind. If we're fortunate, COVID is a kind of what Bruno Latour called a dress rehearsal for dealing with climate change. Uh, mm -hmm. Reminds us that the natural world does things that we can't necessarily control that well. And we have to act collaboratively at incredible scale uh, and across incredible silos in order to just survive and do this right. I think looking ahead, that's the biggest, biggest picture I can leave you with. Great. Okay. So, um, what what technologies and social practices should we expect to, to see implemented on campuses in the coming years to help prevent or, or mitigate the the impact of, of another pandemic or something that's even a little bit more localized? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, quite a few. Well, one of the social practices is institutional. Um, in fact, a little more. The first institutional practice has to do with having a kind of uh, emergency administration, having a team that can monitor the world for active intelligence, that can represent stakeholders on campus adequately and fairly, um, and that can make decisions that involve enough people sufficiently, given institutions' culture, to respond quickly enough. Um, I mean, that kind of emergency team has been developing on campuses all over the U.S. world in places that are impacted by the pandemic. I think that become more normalized. Uh, a second is, depending on where an institution is located, basically the, the greater the population area adjacent to an institution, uh, the greater you're going to have to have some kind of barrier. You know, I, I think sometimes of uh, Vassar College in New York, which has on uh, one side of it, a gigantic stone wall. I mean, a medieval thing, right? Uh, I don't know if we'll go that far, but how do you maintain a barrier to keep people who aren't involved in the academic mission of the campus or its general mission uh, from intervening and spreading infections? I wouldn't be surprised to see more and more of that kind of cordon sanitaire uh, start to appear. In terms of technologies, it really depends on your sense of equity. On the one hand, you may see a push for lower levels of technology in order to address the perception that students, as well as staff and faculty, don't have access to bandwidth or to hardware or other parts of infrastructure. So you may see a push downward towards, say, asynchronous technologies, learning management systems, discussion boards, blogging, and so on. Mm -hmm. A push for lower density media, so audio instead of video, video instead of VR. You may see emphasis on writing, for example, because text is the lowest bandwidth of all. Uh, the flip side of that is you may see a push for higher levels of technology in order to try to get that sense of presence together. So this is you know, one of the great things here in the video is that I can scroll here and look at Doug Brown. I can see that Ken Miller actually laughs at my jokes, which is a big plus. Uh, you know, Wesley, I can see your studio with your great mic right in front of you. I mean, I can get a glimpse of you all through this technology and we can do more of that with video, but also this is where augmented and virtual reality come in as well. So you may get a push on that end of the technology to do more. One thing that we haven't really talked about I think in general, not, not this hour, but in general, is the huge importance of mobile devices. I mean, outside academia, mobile devices are how the world engages with the digital world. I mean, that's the leading device intersection. Campuses, though, we're, we're still kind of presuming that the laptop or desktop is the way to go. 
and a lot of our devices, a lot of our applications are still kind of based on that assumption. Uh, so we've got to figure out how to really reach out for the mobile world. And one big reason for that, not just people are using it, that's a big reason, but also we know from study after study that the poorer you are in the United States, the, the blacker, the more Latino that you are, the more likely you are to spend more time on mobile phones doing more stuff with them. So if you're at all interested in issues of equity, then shifting emphasis to mobile is a really key step to take. How about is, you know, as far as technology that universities may be looking at to, to, to try to get ahead or to help manage uh, along contact tracing, that type of thing. Do you see a campus where, my thoughts is, you know, that's kind of a perfect, I mean, we can look at South Korea as a, you know, as an example of it, but, you know, trying to deploy in, in the U.S. what South Korea has in place, there will be riots in the streets. <laughs> but I think college campuses are something that is probably a good test and, and has been very much needed. Uh, what, what is your research and, and just general thoughts on, on that? I think whenever you have a kind of security crisis like this, you go into that rethinking of our expectations of sometimes it's positioned as, you know, civil liberties versus security, for example. And already I've seen some civil libertarians who spent a long time talking about the importance of uh, protecting data. And so, yeah, now is the time to share personal data because it literally is a matter of life and death. On campuses, it's very, very interesting. We were one of the last sectors in American society to figure out the big data and the analytics were actually things. Um, we're still catching up, we're, we're way behind, but we've got ways of doing that, ways to improve student success, ways to improve advising and all this good stuff. At the same time, we have a lot of pushback. We have uh, a kind of older pushback based on a suspicion of technology that misses the richness of human experience. Um, often this comes from humanists. And I say this in full disclosure, I mean, I am a humanist. My PhD is in English lit, right? So there's that sense that, uh, you know, you can't track everything of the educational experience through numbers. That's one objection. A more recent objection uh, has to do with uh, suspicion over how mostly companies as well as governments have been misusing uh, data collection and big data analytics. So you have wonderful, wonderful scholars like Zainab Tufechki and uh, Kathy O'Neill uh, who have drawn our attention to the way that companies like uh, Facebook uh, can misuse our data. And so there's a, when it comes to campuses doing it, people want to watch out for that. They want to make sure that uh, campuses keep data secure, first of all, which is non-trivial. And second, that campuses don't misuse it to either reinforce pre-existing uh, inequalities or to make things worse. And on top of that, uh, that students have some say in what some will call a data valence regime. So when it comes to COVID, you know, that, that debate becomes more fierce in a lot of ways. Uh, do you, how much privacy are you willing to give up in order to protect your lives? Uh, how much, but it's a, it's a public health question, not a personal question. You know, so if you're trying to protect a bunch of 18 year olds in campus, the odds are great they're not going to die from COVID-19. But the odds are also excellent that if infected, they'll take the virus back to their parents and those parents, um, which is where the risks really begin to shoot up. So, you know, d does this become a way of kind of teaching America how public health actually works and how what needs to be done for it? But at the same time, as you said, riots in the streets, that's not an exaggeration because we've already seen something close to riots yeah. uh, in Cleveland and in uh, East Lansing and in other 
people. Um, so I, I think it's going to vary from campus to campus. It's going to vary from region to region. I wouldn't be surprised that if, uh, that if campuses in the New York greater metropolitan area are much more likely to run tracing apps than campuses, say, in Florida. Yeah. Well, one last question. Thanks again for, for your time. But, you know, you're, you're a professor at, at Georgetown. I've heard you speak a lot about the class that you were teaching this, this semester. And I got to think having you as a professor who, who knows this technology or education technology <laughs> very well, um, it, that had to be pretty easy to transition. But now that they actually had to, to be remote, I know you mentioned you know, even in, I believe, other countries, certainly other states. Yeah. Now that now that it's over with, any feedback that they've given you as to they enjoyed it or they hated it or any feedback at all? I think they would have preferred to be face-to-face. Um, now, we, we did have a kind of high-flex, hybrid uh, experience in that some students who were physically removed from the class participate online. So we had a student who, whose job uh, took them to another part of the country, for example. And we had cases where students would be sick, not so sick they couldn't talk, but they didn't want to come to class. Um, or uh, one time we had just a horrible, horrible storm and people couldn't even leave campus. I think the students missed being face-to-face, that's it. And they appreciated what we did uh, to make it all work, and they were glad of that. I think what they were more uh, concerned about was the bigger picture you know, worried about what happens, the issues that you've been raising, Leslie, with your excellent questions, you know, what happens to privacy in America, what happens to grandparents, what happens to the economy. And I think the class became a place for them where they could think that through and share that. That wasn't easy. Um, I mean, I made a habit of, of making sure that I checked in on everybody to make sure they were doing well. And thankfully, I mean, they were all healthy. You know, we didn't, um, that's, that's a big deal. Um, yeah. But that class was a seminar, graduate seminar on education and technology. <laughs> they were the ideal students to uh, think this through. One of my assignments, I don't know if you'll follow this, World Health Organization has been releasing a series of MOOCs aimed at the pandemic. Um, just today, they released three. One was on uh, how to dispose of medical waste uh, and two different things about tobacco that I didn't quite follow. Um, but I had my students go through one of these classes and it was fantastic to see their responses because they had such great intellectual tools for understanding, criticizing, they taking advantage of them. Uh, I mean, they were, uh, they were fantastic. Now, today is Thursday. On Monday, I start my summer seminar on gaming and education. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm hugely, hugely excited about it. But again, we have to do it all online. So, I'm, you know, I've been going nuts trying to figure out ways to do some, uh, normal face-to-face encounters online. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear from folks about their ideas on that. I've got, a, I've got a 14-year-old daughter who I think would uh, love to uh, to observe that class if you've got any extra. <laughs> so. watch, watch my blog post. I'll have a post about it this weekend. <laughs> Great. Well, Brian, thanks so much again. Thanks for, for being uh, so liberal with your time today and, and appreciate every. Uh, everything that you've helped me out with in the past few weeks as I've been trying to like, get my head around all of this and how it's you know going to impact the student housing industry. So thanks again. And if um, again, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, I, of course on the screen have brianalexander.org. Any uh, any other areas that that they should follow you or reach out? Well, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, and so you can find that link from my uh, from my page. 
um, but just uh, uh, Brian Alexander. Um, so I'm happy to tweet it. And, uh, you can always email me directly from brianalexander.org if, uh, if you have any questions or comments. But in the meantime, everybody, please uh, keep thinking and working about this. And above all, stay safe. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it, guys. I appreciate it so much for you taking the time out to, to listen to this. Again, my apologies for uh, <laughs> for for uh, being absent for a few weeks from this particular platform. By no means does it mean that that we've been slacking because we've done a lot of work on creating some more content. So make sure that you are, uh, one, that you're registered for these events, and two, that you're also subscribed to our YouTube channel um, because we're, we're getting content up there pretty quickly from these events. So make sure that, uh, that you've subscribed to us there and, and that way you can get alerts when, um, when those videos have been posted. All right, guys, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.